I used to work out, and when I did, I learned a, just a really simple truth. And the simple truth that I learned was this, that in order to take myself to the next level, I had to do some things that were difficult. I had to put more weight on the bars. I had to put more miles on my sneakers. I had to inject more discipline in my diet in order to kind of get to the next level physically. And those things aren't, aren't easy to do, as many of you maybe know. And the Apostle Paul understood the same concept, but in his faith. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 27, here's what he says. He says, I discipline my body to make it my slave. Here's what he's saying. He said, I did, did whatever it took to get myself to the next level in spiritual growth in this process that we Christians refer to as sanctification, that is growing in holiness, growing in, in, in Christ's likeness. And he often, oftentimes in Scripture uses different kinds of athletic terminology to, to kind of point to us what it looks like to grow in Christ and to understand God's call on our lives. And, and the message that I think God has brought out for us this week from the book of Philemon is when God calls us to do difficult things, when God calls us to do some things that are difficult. Let me, let me just ask you to just maybe in this, this moment of personal evaluation, just to ask yourself just a question. And, and the question being this, what is the next step for you personally, maybe you as, as a family or a couple, for you, what is the next step for you to grow in your walk with God, to grow in, in your faith. And I don't have a specific word from the Lord for, for every single one of you, but what I do have, I believe, is a, is a general truth that we all need, and that is that God is calling every single one of us to do the difficult, to do something that is, is difficult. And I really believe that that's what we need, a challenge to, to do the difficult. One thing I think in, in just my observation over the years uh, that is a, a common problem with the American church is, is that we are under-challenged and therefore we're under-motivated. And as I travel around and, and speak to, to youth around the area, um, just different kind of speaking engagements, one thing that I constantly see is that youth in particular especially are under-challenged and therefore under-motivated. People just don't expect much of them. And so when we call them to something great, something challenging, it's incredible. Much to people's surprise that they step up and they say, yes, I want to do that. And I think that's even, even true of us, that we need to be called to something difficult, called to a great challenge. And I'll tell you this, the, the Bible, God's Word, is not under-challenging by any stretch. It, it gives us a difficult mission. It calls us to rise up and to live radical lives, it, it, it asks us to press up against the status quo. And so the first question that I just want to pose to all of us this morning that I believe is straight from the scriptures is what is the difficult mission that God has for you? Like I said last week as we saw at the beginning salutation from the book of Philemon is that it was, it was very clear in the writings of the Apostle Paul that difficulty was pretty common for Christians, that it was expected. So if it's smooth sailing for you and your walk with God constantly, it's probably because you're not living the kind of radical life that, that God is calling you. And so what is that difficult mission 
that God is putting before you so that you and your church can grow in our mission and and in our our health. And so I just want to ask you if you would commit to pray about that. What is the next step? What is quite possibly that difficult step for me to grow in my walk with God? And just ask God about that. Now, I want to get a little bit more specific this morning with that concept, with that truth that God is calling us to do the difficult. Because I think there's an area that is probably most difficult to do the difficult in in our lives. I believe that some of the most difficult things that God calls us to do in the scriptures involve people. Involve some of the relationships that we're in. People are the, the, the ones that are the most capable of hurting us and the most susceptible to our hurt because we have people in our lives that we're especially close with and oftentimes those are the people that God has us doing some of the difficult things that we're going to look at today with. And so I want to think through this concept a little bit, doing the difficult in our relationships with people. Here's, here's the deal. If someone is, is snappy or rude to me at the mall or at the park, with my kids, you know, I, I, I get over that pretty quickly. But if it's somebody that I know closely, someone that is more than just a person I've kind of loosely acquainted with, the, the pain goes a little bit deeper. Do you know what I mean? The, the pain lasts a little bit longer. Like, here's an example. A year ago, I was in Chicago with my, my family. And my wife and I and my children flew from Boston into Chicago, the rest of my family, my parents who are here, by the way, if you haven't met them, and, and my little sister drove up from Atlanta, and we met in the middle in Chicago with this two-decade-old red van that is the pride and joy of the Wyatt family for many, uh, many, many years. And so the, the van is there, and they're picking me up from the airport, and because I'm the most comfortable with city driving, I was the guy who was assigned to drive the minivan from the airport to my brother's house uh, on the other side of Chicago. And as we're driving along, I was just abruptly cut off by an 18-wheeler, brings me onto the rumble strips and off into the breakdown lane. And I'm telling you, I was angry. I was upset. I couldn't believe that they would just run me off of the road. And so I'm like, Becky, get the number on the back of that truck. How's my driving? It's terrible, right? So we're like frantically... This guy cut me. We were so upset. We were upset. And I'm like, listen, my, my wife is in the car. My kids are in the car. My parents are in the car. My sister's in the car. And you're just going to cut us off? I was upset. But you know what? The next morning, I was okay. The next morning, it was over. It, it was done. I, I, don't, I didn't know the driver. I, I don't think I even saw his face at all. And so it's, it's pretty quick and easy to get over. But when you know somebody and there's some kind of hurt there, the hurt runs deeper right? It, it lasts longer, and the relationship dealing with that is, is much more sensitive. And so what we're looking at is doing that which is difficult in relationships, real relationships, not acquaintances. And so I want to check this out this morning. That is spurring one another on towards holiness, spurring one another on towards that next step in our faith, that next step in our, in our walk with God, which in, occasionally involves things like pointing out sin, which occasionally involves things like pointing out opportunities for growth, for going to the next level in faith. And, and, and often in Scripture we hear about this and we see examples of this 
but particularly in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, it's just this common passage regarding sin and, and growth opportunities. And here what Jesus does is he commands us to point out the sin in a brother or sister in Christ's life. And that is very appropriate, but yet very, very difficult. And, and, and here's what it's not calling us to do. It's not calling us to be spiritual hall monitors, right? Remember this, like upper upperclassmen in elementary school, they get the orange sash, or maybe at your school you got the orange vest and a badge, right? And a, and a badge on a fifth grader is a recipe for disaster, right? Because what they're doing is they're just constantly pointing out people, and then they're throwing a kid in the principal's office because his shoelace is untied, right? Because that's a safety hazard. He could kill somebody. They could break their neck. Go to the principal's office. This is not a call from Scripture to become a, a spiritual hall monitor looking for opportunities to pridefully condemn the weak and to let our heads get puffed up to think that we're something that we're not. That is not what God is calling uh, us to. No, the motivation is love for another person. The motivation is to seek restoration in the life uh, of another person. In the context of Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus calls us to point out sin occasionally in the lives of people is in, in, in context, he's talking about this story, maybe you've heard of it, where there's a hundred sheep and their shepherd, and one of the sheep goes away. You've heard this story? The sheep goes away, and what does the shepherd do? He goes after the one sheep who loses his way. He's searching for it, and when he finds it, what does he do? He finds it, and he rejoices over finding that, that lost sheep. So the motivation is clearly love for the person who has gone astray. So check this out. Let me just read this to you. You don't have to flip there, but Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So if anyone is caught in any transgression, if you're spiritual, you should seek to Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We have to be gentle about it. And then notice this word, if anyone is caught. Now when we hear the word caught, I think it's easy for us to think of, hi, you're caught, busted, got you red-handed. And that's not the context. That's not what this word means, as in busted, I got you. This, this means caught, as in like that lamb who went astray, and maybe he got caught in the thicket, and he's trapped. That's how he's talking. We are to deal with people as if they're trapped and they can't get out and we care for them. We want to help them. And so we go and, and we deal with them in a spirit of gentleness. And so with that motivation, God calls all of us to do what is difficult in our relationships. And as, as I shared last week from the book of Philemon, I told you that we're going to be looking this week at some principles for doing that which is difficult and probably for us and the recipient that which is a bit unenjoyable, calling them to the next level of, of holiness. What we said last week was a form of biblical encouragement. And so let me break it down for you, this, this short little book, this short little letter. Verses 1 through 7, as we saw last week, we referred to as enjoyable encouragement. The kind of encouragement that people want to hear, the kind of encouragement that you want to deliver, right? Maybe, maybe you say to somebody, hey, I, just, I noticed how you've been raising your children. That's really... 
That's great. I mean, wow. I, I really look up to you. Like, that's good encouragement. You want to deliver that, and you like to receive that, right? That's enjoyable kind of encouragement. On the flip side, what we see this week in verses 8 on where Sindel read, we see what I would refer to as unenjoyable encouragement, the kind that is tough. I encourage you to stop this. I encourage you to step it up in this area of your, of your walk with God. That's unenjoyable to deliver and unenjoyable, obviously, to receive. And so we're going to look at this little New Testament book of Philemon. So if you're not there, go ahead and open up there, the little New Testament book of Philemon. Maybe you grabbed a Bible on your way in. If not, um, if you need one, just pop your hand up and one of our ushers can bring that to you. If you don't have a Bible of your very own, keep that one. It's our gift to you. We'd be glad for you to take it and, and, and to break it in. So we're going to finish up this book of Philemon this morning. And since we only have this morning, I'm not going to be able to to point out to you every single deep theological nuance of this book. And there's a lot, but I do want to encourage you, as I said last week, to be reading this book, to be rereading this book in your own time, because there's so much in this book for us to grow and to learn from. Things like Christian, in, in Christian love, Christian encouragement, things like redemption, and as we're, we saw in Sindel's testimony, and as we'll, we'll see here, forgiveness. And, and today, I particularly want to look at doing the difficult in relationships, because I believe that many of us may not be growing in our walks with God. Maybe we're at a, a stalemate. We're, we're kind of stopped right now because we're unwilling to do the difficult in relationships, or maybe some of us are unwilling to receive the difficult done towards us in love in relationships. Now, this letter Philemon is an epistle. Remember we said last week that epistles are like letters, but a little more formal in that it would be read to the person by the person that it was directed to, and then it would be passed around for others to read. And this one was directed at the beginning. We saw it was directed um, to a guy named Philemon from the apostle Paul, who is in prison. And Philemon is, is a leader of the church of Colossae. The church meets in his house. It says it's also directed to Athea, who we speculate most likely is his wife, to Archippus, who is most likely his son, and it says the church that meets at their house. And what Paul is going to do, as we will read today, in the unenjoyable side of encouragement, is he's going to make this spiritual appeal, this exhortation to Philemon. And remember, again, this letter is eventually read before the entire church. So as I said last week, let's put ourselves in Philemon's shoes for just, just a minute. I mean, this is crazy, right? This letter is, is directed to, to you, but it's read before the in, entire church. It's, it's directed to call you to do something, but yet it's read before everybody. And so you can just, as we said last week, imagine all the heads just whoosh. And they're staring at you. How are you going to respond to this letter that has been read before the church? This is, this is some pretty crazy stuff. And so it's this kind of, kind of godly pressure from the word of God. This was the inspired word of God, spoken and written, directed to Philemon. And it's good pressure from God's, God's people. So is this true of us, as I said last week? Are we holding people to the word of God? Are we giving that good, holy, godly kind of pressure, where the shepherding, remember this is a shepherding issue, one sheep going astray, where shepherding happens not because the pastor or church leaders have to do it all the time, but shepherding happens because we're all shepherding. We're all looking out for those who have, have gone astray. Are we doing that? Now, before we read it, let me just give you a summary 
of what we're going to read, of, of, of what is happening here. Paul is in jail in, in Rome. And, and while in, in jail or prison in Rome, a guy named Onesimus comes to, to visit Paul. And, and Paul says something like, Onesimus? What? What are, what are, you, what are you doing here? See, what, what, what was going on is that Paul already knew Onesimus because Onesimus was the servant of Paul's friend that we talked about last week for whom the, the book is named after Philemon. Onesimus was the servant of, of Philemon. And Onesimus, as is common for many servants then, his name meant profitable or, or, or useful. And obviously it wasn't being very profitable or useful. And, and here's why. Because if Onesimus was here with Paul in Rome, it meant that he wasn't with Philemon, his, his master, back in Colossae. In other words, he had run away seeking freedom. He's a runaway servant. And we read that he stole from, from Philemon. He, 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 he stole some stuff. And, and in verse 10, it's interesting that Paul, it says, had a son while he was in prison. Isn't that cool? Paul has a son. He becomes a daddy, but not literally. Paul told, told Onesimus about Jesus. Onesimus begins to follow Jesus. Paul starts to disciple Onesimus, and, and, and then through all of this, Paul becomes so close with Onesimus that, that he considers him like his own son. So you have the slave master back in Colossae, you have, who, is a, who is also a Christian, we'll get to that. And we have Paul and Onesimus who are enjoying this wonderful relationship to the point that Paul calls Onesimus like his, his own son. Then in verse 12, it says that they get so close that Onesimus now, he says, is like my very heart, right? Onesimus is like my very heart. And, and as they're spending time together, in time, Paul has to call Onesimus to do the difficult, to do something very hard. And so eventually a conversation has to happen. And the conversation, I imagine, goes something like this from the details we get in the book of Philemon. Paul has to say something like, Onesimus, I need to ask you to do something very difficult. I really think you need to go back to Colossae. I really think you need to go back to Philemon. And if I was Onesimus, I would, I would just, are you crazy? Are you serious? I was a slave, but, but now I, I, I'm free. And Paul, slavery is, is not good, Onesimus, but you should submit to the authorities that are in your life and you should trust God for the rest and so I imagine Onesimus to respond like, Paul, this is, this is really hard to swallow, but you're like a father to me. And if you say this is right in the eyes of the Lord, I'm going to do it. And then Paul responds with something like, my son, this is a decision that will honor God. I will love you and I will miss you. I will pray for you. So this is a really interesting set of events that happen in, in this, this letter. And, and Paul doesn't even leave it at that, though. As we'll read, what he does is he then takes an opportunity not only to teach Onesimus, but to teach his friend Philemon, the Christian slave master, both of them, some really important, important letters or lessons from, from this letter. And so he writes this letter, and it's focused at Philemon. And, and here's what it says. Let's read 10 through 18. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of bounce around and get some, some pieces of this, but we're going to get all of it. And, and some different pieces in a, just a way that I feel like is, is easiest for us to get it and understand. So 10 through, through 18, he says, Philemon, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, 
whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Nice little play on words for Onesimus means useful. He was useless, but now he's useful to you and to me. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness may, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So we'll bounce around a little bit, but here's what we've read. Here's what Paul says. He says, Philemon, Onesimus, your runaway slave, has come to see me here in in Rome. He's come to visit me, and he's given his his life to Christ. And he's now like a a son to me, and as much as I want him here with me, because I'm, I'm in prison, I'm the one locked up, right? I'm the one who needs encouragement. I'm the one who needs friends. I'm the one who needs fellowship. As much as I want to keep him here with me, I'm going to send him back to you, Philemon, in, in, in Colossae, because this is what is right. I love this guy, but I have to send him back. So he goes on, he says, Philemon, be gracious to Onesimus when he comes back to you. He says, perhaps, perhaps God allowed him to run away so that he could see me, he could give his life to Jesus, and he could encourage me. God is in the details here, and Paul sees it. He says, now, Philemon, I want you to take Onesimus back. And this is where Paul really speaks out against the culture of the day. Even even many Christians had it wrong. He says, take him back, but not as a slave, no longer as a slave. The Bible is not for slavery, no longer as a slave, but as a brother. And then he says this. He says, and whatever Onesimus has done in the past, whatever he has done in the past, if he has stolen from you, if he owes you anything, what does he say? He says, charge it to me. Charge it to me. And so that was Paul's unenjoyable, difficult encouragement to Philemon. He says, here's what I encourage you to do. And it was difficult for Paul to deliver. As you can imagine, it was difficult for Philemon to receive. Now remember, this is read to Philemon before the church that meets at Philemon's house. And so the pressure is on for him to accept Onesimus, for him to emancipate Onesimus and to forgive his debt. And so what we have now is we have this really unique kind of three-sided relational triangle here. And they're all kind of dealing with each other. And there's all kinds of, of, of growth opportunities that, that are being presented. And, and, and in this triangle, we have Onesimus. In this triangle, we have Paul. In this triangle, we have Philemon. They all have a relationship with each other. And what we have is we have the offender, we have the offendee, and then we have Paul, who is the friend caught in the middle. I wonder if you've ever been the friend caught in the middle in a, in a, a three-sided relationship, right? Paul's like, I love both of you, and one's offended, one's the offendee, and I'm just the one caught in the middle, and maybe you can relate a little bit. Maybe the scenario is not like your scenario at all, but the principles here really, really apply And I want to look at some principles for the remainder of our time together. We're going to call them this. We're going to call them principles for doing the difficult 
in, in relationships. And, and, and I want you to see that if you will live out these principles, if you will practice these principles in your relationships, I, I really believe it's going to lead to powerful, God-honoring, fruitful relationships. All of these men are called to do something difficult in these relationships. Let me just give them to you. Paul, he's called to do something difficult. He, he, he has to willingly give up this Onesimus who has become a great encouragement to him while he's, he's in, in prison. And he has to challenge a, a strong believer. Philemon was a strong believer to forgive and to receive back, according to their law, uh, a criminal. And this was a really tough thing that he had to present to Philemon to challenge him to step it up and go to the next level. So Paul had to do something difficult. Onesimus had to do something difficult. He had to be asked by Paul to do that which is God-honoring, and that is to deal with the consequences of his sin. He broke the law. He ran away. He, he stole. He escaped slavery. And so Onesimus has to do something really difficult, and he has to go back. Can you imagine? And just a, a side note, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, uh, Corinth. he says that a a person must remain in the condition in which he or she was called. So when you give your life to Jesus, he says you need to remain in the condition in which you were called. So in that day, if you were in slavery, you remain in that relationship and you bask in the glory that, that is having the perfect master, Jesus Christ. You have ultimate, eternal freedom but you live honoring that, that enslavement relationship that you had in hopes that God will bring that master around to understand the truth that, that slavery is, is not honoring to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 also says that if, if you come to know Jesus and you're already married and, and your spouse doesn't know Jesus, do you divorce that person so that you won't be unequally yoked as the Bible calls us to be equally yoked? Of course not, right? First Corinthians 7 says, no, you remain in the condition in which you were called and you show that person a God-honoring example of what Jesus would be in that relationship in hopes that they come to know Jesus as well. As Sindel said, you pray for those relationships and God wants to move in power. And so Onesimus was called to do something difficult to remain in the relationship with Philemon that he was in, even though it wasn't a a, a good, pretty relationship. And so he has to go back. And then Philemon is called to do something very difficult. Philemon is is called by Paul, encouraged by Paul, to forgive someone who has hurt him, who has stolen from him, who has probably cost him a lot of, of, of money, but not only to forgive that person, but to accept them back as a brother, Paul says, he's stolen from you, he's run away, I want you to accept him back, no longer as a slave, but as, as a brother. And so as we go through these principles, you're going to see that all three of these guys are doing these principles, doing something that is difficult. And maybe you can identify with one of them, maybe not, but these principles are very powerful. Here's, here's principle number one. Principle number one is be gracious in your words to people. Be gracious in your, your words to people. Look at, look at verse 3 here. In, in the salutation at the very beginning, here's what Paul says in his letter to Philemon. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul uses this, this greeting that is common to Paul. This is a slightly modified version of what Paul says in almost all of his other 
uh, epistles. And, and what it's telling us is that Paul, as, as Peter said in his first sermon to the Gentiles, he said, our God is not a God of partiality. Likewise, Paul wasn't partial to anybody. He genuinely, from his heart, wanted God's grace and peace on every single life that he was in contact with. And so is this, is this true of us? When we have relational conflicts, do we approach people like this, like Paul? Where when there's a relational conflict, do we approach them and say, you know, I really want God's best for this person. As we heard in the testimony, maybe it needs you, it means you need to pray about this for some time to where your heart comes to the place where I really do want God's best for that person. When you pray for that person, it's incredible how God softens your heart so you really do want his best for them. Do we, do we approach the relational conflicts like that or do we come at the person in attack mode, right? I mean, that's so often us. When somebody's hurt us or there's, there's sin, we just come attacking. And that's not how God calls us to approach the situation. He calls us to do it with gentleness and love and, and doing it seeking restoration. And so we need to go at that person with the same grace, with the words that express the same grace that Jesus has shown us when he gave us his life and as he forgave us of, of our sin. And if you really don't wish God's best on that person, if you really don't wish God's grace on that person, you need to check your heart. I have to do this a lot. I have to check my heart, pull the plank out of my, my, my own eye often. Let's read, let's read verses 4 through 7 from last week if we can. After verse 3, now it says, I think my God, always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He broke that down in depth last week. But again, see what Paul is doing here. He wasn't puffing up Philemon before he tells him the difficult stuff. He wasn't lying. He wasn't giving empty words. What he is doing is he's showing genuine appreciation for Philemon. He's really showing that, that I care for you, I appreciate you, before asking him to receive back a criminal, someone who has, has wronged him. And so he says, Philemon, I have been thanking God for you. I've heard about you and, and your great love for Jesus, your great love for the church of, of Colossae. It brings me great joy. And maybe you're thinking right now, oh no, Josh, you don't know the person that I need to deal with. You don't know. There, there's nothing good that I can, I can say about them. All I'm saying is this, that if you really care about them, if you're going to do this God's way, then you need to show them that you care about them before you smack them over the head with, with the Bible. And, and, and they're more apt to hear that your truth when you show them that you care about them and you love them. And if you can't say anything gracious at all, I don't think that you really understand God's grace that was, was lavishly just poured out on us undeserving sinners. So let me just give you some other side points here. Some other side points about being gracious with words. Here, here's, here's one. When it comes to writing emails, this has become so just commonplace to us that we just kind of boom, 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 sin. We do it real fast. And, and maybe what you need to do when it comes to writing emails is you need to slow down a little bit, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls us to slow down, to be cautious, to look about where we're going. And I think that applies with 
our words, things like emails. Maybe you need to proofread it before you click send. Maybe you need to reread it. Maybe you need to have a, a spouse read it, not a friend, because then you're kind of crossing into gossip territory, but maybe have your spouse read it if you have a spouse or a family member before clicking send, because so often we click send and we send out ungracious emails or we leave ungracious messages or, or letters and, and, and not, maybe sometimes even not on purpose, but people, because we're so fast, they, they interpret things that maybe we didn't in, intend, but we need to slow down a little bit. And, and I'll tell you this, my general rule of thumb for emails, only because I've been guilty of this my, myself, is that short emails can lead to long-time hurt, right? If you just boom, 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 send, short emails can lead to long-time hurt. So slow down and be mindful of, of your words and be cautious to articulate. Another thing is if you have to approach somebody, don't be too cool to write it down. Like, that's okay if you write down what you, what you need to say. Maybe you need to read it to yourself again reread it, have a spouse read it. I've done that before. Becky, does this sound really jerky? And she's like, yeah, yeah, it does, right? Listen, here's the deal. I want my, my speech to be like that little filtered water spigot on the front of a refrigerator door. It's, it's, it's very, very careful and controlled and, and, and filtered, that kind of speech. That's what I want my speech to be. And, and so often, I think, for myself and maybe even for all of us, our speech can kind of just be like a busted open fire hydrant, just, just going everywhere. We need to be cautious to control our, our, our speech. Let's read the first half of verse 19. I told you we're bouncing here. We'll get it all, though. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I, Paul, write this with, with my own hand. Here's the deal. Paul was so cautious with his speech that he wrote this letter with his own hand, and oftentimes in his letters he was dictating it to somebody else to write for him, but he wrote this with my own hand, his own hand because he was so cautious. Let's, let's read on. Look at, look at verses 18 through 19. I'll show you one more thing that always reinforces gracious words. 18 and 19. It says, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Incredible stuff that we hear, see here, and, and that is this, that one thing that is, is essential to accompany our gracious words, our, our gracious actions. Paul says, Philemon, here's the deal. Not only am I going to call you to do something difficult, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you do it. I'll do whatever it takes to help you do it. In other words, he says, charge it to me. Charge it to, to my account. His, his gracious words were reinforced by his, his gracious actions. And we've all got those people in our lives who, as we said last week, when you see them coming, you're like, all right, what did I do wrong? When you see their name on your cell phone, they called you or they're calling you. You're like, oh, no, what have I done wrong? Because the only time they ever talk to you is when they're calling you to tell you a problem or, or to criticize you. But Paul says, listen, I want to be gracious in my words to you. I want to call you to something. And I so care about you that I'll do whatever it takes to, to get you there. And there's another reason why Paul wrote this with his own hand. He wrote this with his own hand because in doing so, it's now like a contract. It's now he's legally obligated to do what he said, and that is to pay Philemon for whatever Onesimus has stolen or any finances that Philemon has been taken back from because of the time 
away. And so as I said last week, this letter is also kind of a legal document. So be gracious in your words and your actions to people. Principle number two, moving a little quicker, make loving appeals to people. Make loving appeals, key word, to people. Look at verses 8 through 11. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So Paul says, Philemon, I have enough confidence in Christ. I have enough confidence in the mercy that Jesus has granted to us, the worst of sinners, that I could order you, Philemon. I could say, Philemon, you be merciful, but I'm not going to order you to do that. Instead, I'm going to appeal to you to do what I'm, I'm calling you to. And oftentimes, we are justified, maybe even biblically, to go up to somebody and say, you need to stop the sin that you're in, but how much more effective is it if we go to them and we uh, uh, appeal to them? How, how much more loving does it come across if we say, I, I'm not going to call you to this or command you to this. I'm going to appeal. It's that same Greek word that we saw last week, parakaleo, to encourage. He says, Philemon, I don't command you. I appeal to you. I encourage you to do what is, is right. Paul uses it here in verse 9, like we saw earlier in the chapter. And any time a word is repeated in Scripture, it has really, really special force that is carried with it. And so Paul is dealing gently and lovingly with this tough request to Philemon. And as you read through Paul's letters in, in the Scripture, here's what you'll see. Paul often refers to two things. He refers to the sheep, and he refers to, to wolves. And he deals gently with the sheep, and he deals harshly with the wolves. And remember, this is a, a sheep issue. This is a shepherding issue that we as a church might become a, a shepherding people. And Philemon is a sheep. He is one of the flock. He is a Christian, even though he has a slavery thing wrong. And, and wolves, on the other hand, are hypocrites. Wolves are false teachers. Wolves are, are deceivers. Matthew chapter 7, 15 uh, Jesus refers to wolves in, in sheep's clothing, that they may be uh, among us. Wolves devour the flock. They, 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 they hurt the flock. They hurt the sheep. And so Martin Luther in history, here's what he said. He says, with the wolves you cannot be too severe. With the sheep you cannot be too gentle. And so if you love the sheep, you deal harshly with, with the wolves among you. And far too often what happens is we as Christians are guilty of dealing with the sheep as though they are wolves. And we go up to the sheep and we attack, 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 attack. And we need to be loving and gracious and seeking restoration. Our motivation must be love. And so we make gentle, loving appeals when calling people to greater holiness. But far too often we're, we're harsh. We're harsh. People want to hear loving appeals over harsh commands. Here's the next principle. Don't assume the worst in people. Don't assume the worst in people. I'm guilty of this in the past. For the dads, I will make one exception for you. If we're talking about boys and your daughter, assume the worst. Like, that's, that's okay. Definitely assume the worst. But in general, don't assume the worst in people. Look at verse 
12. It says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So Paul mentions here that he has sent Onesimus back in person to Philemon. So I just want you to, to see that the very fact that Paul has sent Onesimus back to Philemon in person, most likely carrying the letter in his hand to give to Philemon. I just, I just picture Onesimus saying, please read the letter first before you kill me or throw me in jail. Like, I just imagine it's, it's incredible. And Paul is assuming the best in, in Philemon that he would not lock him up or, or run away or, or get wild on his runaway servant. And so he assumes the, the best in Philemon, that he would take him back, that he would emancipate him and take him back as a brother. And though we don't know the outcome of the letter, I think it's safe based on Paul's confidence in Philemon that he did, he, he did in fact, take back Onesimus as more than a, a slave, as a, as a brother, as a brother. And, and, and so what Paul does is, is rather than pressing hard on Philemon, he makes this appeal and he assumes that Philemon will, in fact, hear his encouragement. And, and, and we need to be careful to do this, too. We really need to be careful to do this, too, to assume not the worst in people, but to assume that they will follow the Lord. Don't assume the worst. Look at, look at verse 21. Verse 21. He says, confident, Philemon, in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I, I say. So he assumes that Philemon is going to, to listen. And so we're talking about two brothers here doing the difficult thing in this relationship. So we must not be guilty of, of assuming the worst. And sending the letter, he is not assuming the worst. He's assuming that he'll read the letter, understand the situation, and then deal accordingly. And maybe that needs to be us that we need to hear somebody out first and not just assume the worst. I think our minds can just kind of get way ahead of the thing and assume the worst. I'm certainly guilty of that in a moment of confession. Here's the last principle. Leave room for change in people, right? This is important for us Americans in our microwave society, expecting things instantly. Leave room and time for change in people. Look at verses 13 through 17. 13 through 17. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Leave room for change in people. So when you're dealing with people, you have to have a, a loving heart for that person and really want to see God change them, as we heard in the testimony. We want to really see God do a great work in their lives, and you have to understand that it might not happen. It probably won't happen over overnight. People often don't heed your encouragement at first. Many people will be upset with you at first, been there. It can be a long, slow process, but what I've most commonly seen is in time, days, weeks, sometimes months, years later, they come back and they say, wow, I appreciate that. You really were doing something that was tough for you to do, awkward for you to do, but you did it because you loved 
me and you, you care for me. And in time, God's going to use his word. He's going to use his Holy Spirit who brings about conviction. He's going to use these principles that come from Scripture to convict and to persuade people to do what is honoring in the eyes of, of the Lord. And so Paul left room for change, both in Onesimus and in, in Philemon. Can you imagine Paul when he first sees Onesimus, right? Onesimus comes to him while he's in Rome locked up. And you can just imagine, Paul, what? What are you, what are you, what are you doing here? What he could have done is quickly said, go back, lock him up, get this guy, throw him in here with me. He didn't do that, did he? He took time and, and allowed him to, to come around, he shared the, the message of Jesus with Onesimus. Onesimus heard the truth of, of the gospel. And then, in time, he called Onesimus to do what is, what is right and honoring in the eyes of the Lord. He left that time and that room for, for change. Because Onesimus wasn't even a Christian yet. To say, go back, because that honors the Lord, that would be ludicrous, right? It would be ludicrous. But think about how we do that in our, in our culture, Right? Think about how we as, as Americans try to, in, in, in the name of redeeming the culture, call non-Christians to do Christian-like things. Do we really expect for non-Christians to act like Christians? No, what you do is you, you pour out your heart to them. You, you share the love of Christ with them, and as they come to know Jesus, then you call them to holiness and to the things of Christ. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2.14, here's what it says. Paul says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, for they are spiritually appraised. So if somebody doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, how do we call them to live like a Christian? We call them to Jesus first, so we don't confuse the issue. We leave time for them and room for them to, to change. So Paul does his part. He shares the gospel with Onesimus. Onesimus begins to follow Jesus, and a part of that discipleship process is let's start to deal with some of the sin that you're not dealing with in your life. And one of them is you need to go back in the condition that you were in when you were saved. You need to go back to Philemon. Paul also left room for change in, in Philemon. In verses 13 and 14, he says something like, Philemon, Onesimus has been such an encouragement to me while I'm here in prison. I wish, he's dropping some hints, right? I really wish he could be here with me and, and, and encourage me, but I don't want to keep him here, Philemon, without your consent, so I'm going to send him back. What's Paul doing? He's leaving room, time for Philemon to say, you know what? I think I'll send Onesimus back to Paul. He's leaving time and room, room for, for change. Incredible. And I, and I want to close with this. Obviously, it took time for God in his sovereignty, in his power, in his plan, in his hands, in all these details. It took time for God to take a bad situation and turn it around and make just this beautiful situation out of it. He took a, a runaway, sinful servant and a thief. And, and with a little bit of time and the Holy Spirit, he, he took this person, Onesimus, and made him forgiven and free and a brother and, and a son. And, and Paul says he's no longer a slave, more than a slave, a beloved brother. Galatians chapter 3, 28 says this. There's neither slave nor, nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Just see what God does with Jesus. What he does with Jesus is he takes a difficult situation and makes good out of it. 
And that's what our God does. And so the principle, overarching principle here for us, is that a difficult situation dealt with in God's way will bore, bear God's, God's results, which was a great, three-sided, wonderful, God-honoring relationship. And so as we all think about imp- implementing these, these, these principles in our relationships, implement them with, with the truth of the gospel that God wants to do something great. Implement these principles with optimism in your mind and in your heart for seeing that God will do something great. I'll tell you this. My best relationships are the relationships that have gone through difficulty. My best relationships are the ones that have been tried by fire. And if you're willing to do things God's way, God will grow stronger, more holy, more healthy relationships. Why don't we pray?